I would invite you to open the scriptures this evening to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. And in this psalm, we are going to see some remarkable things. Sometimes it's easy for me to get distracted in the way that I see David interpreting other earlier scripture. So we'll see David interpreting earlier scripture. And, and that's not a terrible thing to be, be distracted by. Another thing, though, that I'm, I'm sometimes uh, distracted by is the way that David's interpretation of earlier Scripture and application to, of it to his own life also begins to point forward to what will come after David. And again, that's not a terrible thing to be distracted by. But I don't want to lose sight tonight. I don't want to be distracted tonight from what's at the heart of this psalm, which is David's experience experiential knowledge of God. So this psalm, this psalm is, is uh, fascinating, and it's a wonderful picture of the way that David is interpreting the Scripture, applying it to his life, and, and thereby also forecasting the future, but it also gives us a window into David's own experience of God. And that's what we want to, uh, to grow in for ourselves, because it, it is as we experience God, that we are uh, delighted by him, that we are enabled by him to, to live sacrificially for others and to uh, battle our own sinful tendencies. So I would invite you to look with me at Psalm 34. And as we go through this psalm, I will, I'll make some comments about, about its structure, how it holds together. As we begin, I want to draw your attention to the superscription because this is, this is a really interesting superscription. And already in this superscription, David is interpreting his own life in light of the Bible. So the superscription reads of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Perhaps you remember this episode in David's life. Uh, The prophet Samuel has anointed David king and the, the sitting king, Saul, is not very happy about that. So the sitting king, Saul, decides He doesn't want David to be king. He wants to be king. So he tries to kill David. He starts throwing spears at David. David then, I don't know why David took it into his mind to do this, but this is what the Bible says he did. David fled to a city called Gath. Do you remember who was from Gath? Goliath was from Gath. I don't know why David thought that he would have a, a welcome reception in the hometown of the hero that he had killed in battle, but that's what he did. He went to the Philistine city of Gath. Do you remember the name of the king of the Philistine city of Gath that David fled to? Don't look at the superscription. That's not the name. What's, the, what's his name? Does anybody remember his name? It was Achish. Achish, the king of Gath. That was the king. And uh, David goes to Achish, and they, Achish is glad to see David, re- remarkably. I mean, I, I don't understand how all these dynamics worked. Maybe there's, there's a rational way to get, get it all put together. That Maybe, maybe this is what uh, champions of, ba- of battle and uh, warfare did at that time. They defected to one another, and it was somewhat, I don't know, maybe it was common. But anyway, Achish is glad to see David until some of his advisors say, this is the one that they sing in their songs, David has slain his, uh, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And at that point, Achish reconsiders. Maybe it's not such a good thing that David has come to us. And David realizes this was a bad idea. And, and so he lets his spittle run down his beard. He acts like a crazy man. And, um, and Achish says, do I need more madmen? And they, they, they drive him out. 
Um, so of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech. David, David is the author of this psalm. David knows the guy's name. What is going on? Why does he say when he changed his behavior before Abimelech? Different proposals have been put forward. Some people have proposed maybe Abimelech was a title that all the Philistine kings um, carried. And, and one of the reasons people make this suggestion is because Abraham encountered a Philistine king named Abimelech, and Isaac also encountered a Philistine king named Abimelech. I don't know whether or not that's the case, but I think that connection to Abraham and Isaac is important. And, and I think that connection to Abraham and Isaac is why David gives the name Abimelech here instead of the name uh, Akish. So I think the reason David does this is as David reflects on his life, he sees I'm in the line of descent that comes from Adam and Eve through Abraham, through Judah, down to me, and then this seed has been promised to me that the Lord is going to make king forever. And when I look at this line of descent, Abraham and Isaac were also in the land of promise, and they had difficulty from Philistines named Abimelech. Now, here I am in the land of promise, and I'm having difficulty from a Philistine named Achish. Uh, but by giving the name Achish, David creates a kind of solidarity between, between the one opposing him and those who opposed Abraham and Isaac, and between himself and Abraham and Isaac. So I think that kind of, of solidarity is being accomplished through this interpretive naming of Achish as Abimelech. That, that, that sort of thing is going to continue as, as we move through this psalm. In these first three verses, David is praising the Lord. And, and as we read these verses, bear in mind the situation to which David is responding. We know the situation he's responding to. He's fled to the Philistines. They, uh, they initially are happy to see him, and then they realize, we don't want this guy here, and then he escapes through this ruse of acting like a madman. Look at what he says in response to this in verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. David escapes from the Philistines and he's blessing and praising God. David is responding to his life circumstances with praise for God. This is, this is a, a disposition of heart that is inclined to praise because he recognizes God's goodness to him personally. He says in verse 2, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. And then he says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Notice how he, he begins praising the Lord himself individually. I will bless the Lord at all times. And then in verse 3, there's a call to this other group of people to magnify the Lord with him. People that are going to praise God with David are going to share David's perspective. And, and um, we'll see as we move through this psalm that there are, there are different groups of people involved in, in the actions uh, described in this psalm. Those, th those first three verses there are all about David's praise to God um, when, when the Lord delivered him uh, before Abimelech. In verses 4 through 7, David tells us about the deliverance. Verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. This is like a window 
into the circumstances. Because as we read the narrative in, in, the, books of, uh, in the book of Samuel, we don't read necessarily that when David decided to change his behavior before Abimelech and start acting like a madman, that he called on the Lord. But that's what he's telling us here. I sought the Lord and he answered me. So this is, this is telling us that while David was in those circumstances, he was seeking God and by escaping, he understands God delivers, delivers him. And then he says in, the verse, in verse 4 there, he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 5, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Can you think of a time earlier in the Bible when someone has looked to the Lord with the result that his face was radiant? Moses, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Here's what I would propose is happening. David is reflecting on Moses at Mount Sinai. Moses is up on the mountain with God. He's experiencing God's direct presence. He comes down from the mountain and his face is shining. David knows that historical event and he, he, it's like he deduces from that. This is the way things go. When people seek God, their faces shine. When those who look to him are radiant and their faces will never be ashamed because the Lord will protect and defend his people. He will, he will hold me fast, like we sang. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. It's, it's amazing how, how um, joy and gratitude can transform someone's, someone's appearance, someone's uh, uh, visage, so that... If, if, you, if you're ever around someone who's consistently joyful, you have the impression this is an attractive person. Whatever they look like, the, the joy and the gladness that, that radiates out from them is beautiful and glorious. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. David takes Exodus 34:29 and he personalizes it. Then he says in verse 6, This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Notice how uh, David has referred to the humble in verse 2. And, and now he refers to himself as a poor man in verse 6. This is, it's, it's remarkable the way, that, the way that God's people in the Bible are always the afflicted people, even though they're God's people. It, it's, and yet it's, it's true. We really are uh, the, 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 those who are outnumbered, those who are outmanned and, and those um, who, are, who are not as powerful in worldly terms as, as the world. This poor man, David says, cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Now, David has just referred to Exodus 34:29, and here I think he's referring to an earlier chapter in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 14. On that occasion, what happened is Israel had come out of Egypt, and they had come to the shores of the Red Sea, and then here comes the army of Pharaoh and all, all Pharaoh's chariots. And we read in Exodus 14 that the angel of the Lord and the pillar of cloud moved from being in, in front of Israel to being behind them so that the, the Egyptians could not come near to the Israelites all night long. I think that's the, the historical event 
that informs Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Now, notice what's happened here again. Something from the Exodus narrative is being applied to David's own personal life. First, in verse 5, it was those who looked to him are radiant. Moses is shining face. Now, in verse 7, it's, it's the, the pillar of, of fire and, and cloud and, and the angel of the Lord that was leading Israel and then protecting Israel. Now, David is applying that to himself personally. I think what, what's happening here is exactly what was intended to happen as a result of the Passover. Do you remember the, the instructions for the celebration of the Passover feast? They're, they're told in Exodus 12, when your son asks you why you do all these things, you will say to him, this is what the Lord did for me when he brought me out of Egypt. So what, what, the, what the celebration of the Passover does year by year is it takes the events of the exodus from Egypt and it personalizes those events and, and it makes it so that the individual Israelite is personally claiming those events as though he was there. And it's then taking those events and making them like a set of lenses through which the Israelites were intended to look at, look at the world. So that when they, when they look at how God saves them, they look through the lens of the exodus from Egypt. And when they describe how God saved them, they use the terminology of the exodus from Egypt. They use the categories, the events of the exodus. That's what David is doing here to describe how God saves his people. So David has acted like a madman in Gath so that Achish the king drove him out. And when David goes to talk about that, he starts talking about Moses on Mount Sinai and the angel of the Lord protecting uh, the Israelites from the Egyptians. That's, these are the, the symbolic images that David uses to communicate the significance of God's action on his, on his behalf in his own life. And then it, it becomes personal, but here in verse 8, but it, we continue in the same vein. So in verses 8 through 14 now, we're urged to taste and see that the Lord is good. So we have praise in verses 1 through 3, deliverance in verses 4 through 7, and now this call to taste in verses 8 through 14. David says in verse 8, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I think he has in mind Exodus chapter 24, verse 11, where Moses writes, I'll start reading in verse 9, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So there, in Exodus 24 there, we, we read of what looks like a covenant meal. It also looks like in the beholding of God, there was a meeting of their physical needs. They beheld God and they ate and drank. So that this personal experience of God was satisfying to them. And David seems to be calling his audience, those who align with him, Verse 2, let the humble hear and be glad. Verse 3, oh, magnify the Lord with me. These people who are going to hear about what God has done for David and join him in rejoicing in it, David is now calling them to taste and see that the Lord is good. What he's saying is, 
You need to experience God for yourself. You individually, you personally, now this can be mediated to you through the congregation, because the, God, God mediates his love to us uh, through other people, and, and it's remarkable the way, that, the way that bodies of people, congregations like this one, are, are often so powerfully effective at mediating God's love to God's people. But we have to experience this for ourselves. You have to taste it. You have to see it with your own eyes. In order for you to become convinced that the God of the Bible is worth more to you than anything that, that tempts you, he's, he's worth more to you than anything that would lure you away, you have to experience it for yourself. It's, it's like what uh, Jonathan Edwards described when he spoke of the way that the person who has tasted honey doesn't need to be told that it's sweet. He's experienced it for himself. That's the way you need to experience God. You need to taste and see that the Lord is good. How do you do this? Well, you meditate on the Scriptures. You, you become someone whose life is informed by the Scriptures. And then you do exactly what David has described here. You call on the Lord. You seek the Lord. And then when the Lord delivers you, you praise Him for it. This psalm is, is both calling us to taste and see and modeling for us what it looks like to taste and see. Verse 8 in the middle, it says, Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Uh, this is what Psalm 2 says at the end of the psalm um, when it, when it um, warns those who are, are, are rebellious. It says, Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in the way. And then the psalm concludes with the words, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It, it's, 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 it's what Psalm 34 says. Verse 9, O fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. O fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear Him have no lack. The language here of, of having no lack, it's the language that we know from Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 7. Maybe, maybe you're familiar with this passage. Uh, Moses says, The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. And I think the kind of fear of God that results in, in enjoyment of God's provision is the kind of thing that we see in the instructions that were given to Israel about the manna from heaven. They were not to gather manna from heaven on the Sabbath day. They were to fear the Lord, to reverence Him, and to respect the boundary that He had set up. And then they were to trust that He, was, he would provide. And David is, is appropriating that imagery, and he's saying... Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. So often when we are tempted to sin, whether it is uh, sin that is financial, where we maybe we cut corners, or maybe we wouldn't put it this way. We, we might say we're, we're looking for a shrewd business deal. It could be it could be phrased. You're looking to rip someone off. When we, when we engage in these kinds of financial dealings, we're afraid that we will lack financial resources if we don't conduct ourselves these, way, this, these ways. 
or if it's, if it's sexual sin. We, we are afraid that we will lack some pleasure that we could have if we were to transgress God's boundaries. Or if it's some, some seeking of influence or power. We are afraid that we will lack the enjoyment we would otherwise have if we had this influence. And so we then pursue illicit means of, of gaining this, this power over others. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him have no lack. How do you come to fear God? You experience Him. Verse 8, you taste and see that the Lord is good. Verse 10, the young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. I'm not sure whether David means to say here that, um, he's talk, that these are physical animals, young lions, or, or if the young lions was like a, uh, a gangster-type name of a group of people that were maybe opposed to David. And, and, and it could be that the... Because in other, in other psalms, you know, David will say things like... Um, uh, wild bulls have surrounded him. And it, so far as we know, he wasn't ever in danger from wild bulls who were about to stampede him or something. But he was surrounded by people trying to kill him. So it may be that he's saying, these wicked people are opposed to me. These young lions, they suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Notice that, that word lack in both verses there. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. This, this haunting line when, when Nathan indicts David after his sin with Bathsheba. And, and Nathan rehearses all that God gave to David. And then he says to him, And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. It, it's like God is saying to David, I'm going to make it so that you lack nothing if you'll just seek me instead of seeking illicit pleasure, forbidden pleasure. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, verse 11. Listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So in verses 8 through 14 here, at the center of this psalm, David calls his audience, those who, who are aligned with him, those who are hoping in him, he calls them to experience God's goodness for themselves. And notice the dynamic of trust at work here. If you, if you know God's commandments... And you see a way that if you were to transgress those commandments, you could attain some forbidden pleasure or you could get something that you want and you don't do it because you believe that those who, who fear him have no lack, that those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Trust, your, your trust in God is active in helping you to fight sin. So David is interpreting his own life, informed by the Scriptures, and he's talking about his own personal experience of God. In verses 15 through 18, he talks about how he called on the Lord and how he was heard and how he was delivered. 
So he says in verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. And this psalm has already been defining the identity of the righteous, hasn't it? The righteous are those who taste and see that the Lord is good, who take refuge in him, who fear him, who seek him. I'm just walking through verses 8 through 10 there. Uh, who, they, they fear him again in verse 11. They, they, see, they, uh, they desire life, verse 12. So they keep their tongue from evil and they turn away from evil, verses 13 and 14. Those are the righteous. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. But verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Look at verse 18 of Psalm 33. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. 34:15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And then this deliverance in verses 17 and 18. Notice how verse 17 speaks in the plural. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. And then verse 18, it goes singular. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him, that's singular there in verse 19, the Lord delivers him out of them all. Okay, so um, the Lord is saying that those who walk with them, he is personally attentive to them. And verse 18 is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. This is a verse that we should have written on the tablets of our minds so that when people in our lives suffer, and we will all, we will all be near people who suffer, we will all suffer ourselves. This verse is ready to hand in a moment when someone you love is, is dealing with a personal tragedy that, that we'll all face. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Now, the end of this psalm, verses 19 through 22, I'm going to, I'm going to propose something that, um, that I want you to think about. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to be a Berean here, and, and I want you to think about what David is doing here. And, um, y- you know, you, you search the Scriptures and you see if these things are so. We just read verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous... But the Lord delivers him out of them all. I want to propose a a relationship between the him in verse 19 and the them in verse 17. And, And the relationship I would propose goes like this. David is the individual righteous person. He's the him. And everybody aligned with David is is the that's the the group of people that make up the them in verse 17. It's like Psalm 1, which begins, Blessed is the man who doesn't do these things, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And then as you continue through the psalm, you get down to verse 6, and it says, um, or verse 5 and 6, it says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly 
of the righteous. So you've got this individual blessed man, and then you've got an assembly of righteous people, and evidently they live like the individual blessed man. Similarly here, I think these singulars and plurals are important, by the way. I think they're very important in view of what we have in verse 20. So verse 20 says, he keeps all his bones. This is right after verse 19. The Lord delivers him, this individual righteous man, out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And if you're, if you're someone whose mind is saturated with the scriptures, you will recognize here an allusion to Exodus chapter 12. And I'm going to read to you from Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. Actually, I'll start in verse 43 just so we get the context. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. So that, that statement in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, is just a simple statement of what you do with the Passover lamb. You don't break any of its bones. Then David says in Psalm 34, verses 19 and 20, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Let's keep reading in verses 21 and 22. Verse 21, Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. So on this side, you've got the wicked. Affliction is going to slay them. The wicked hate the righteous. They're going to be condemned. On this other side over here, you've got the righteous. And, and the righteous are those who are identifying with David. And in verse 22 we read, The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him. There's that again, verse 22 from verse 8. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. So you've got the wicked and the righteous, and on the righteous side, you've got David, the individual righteous man, and then the group of people who are identified with David. In, in the history of Israel, I think this looks like uh, Saul and Doeg, the Edomite, and all of Saul's henchmen who are all trying to kill David. And then over here, you've got David, and you remember uh, in, I love this line in, in uh, 1 Samuel 22, where it talks about how David flees to this cave, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, all the losers in Israel, they all gather around David. And then that group of people with all their problems, that's the group of people from whom the mighty men are drawn. It, it's like these people, they gather around David, and they get transformed. They become men of character by means of their exposure to God's king and his, his goodness. Um, at, at any rate, you've got the righteous led by David, and then you've got the wicked. And what's going to happen is the wicked are going to be slain. And verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants, the righteous. Redemption, redeem, that's an Exodus word. The Lord redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. Now, here's, here's what I would propose about verse 20, and you be a Berean about this. I think at some level, David is thinking something like this. When, when I am made king, all these people trying to kill me, they will have been decisively defeated. And all these people aligned with me, they will be uh, lifted up into safety. 
and, and, and delivered from all, that, all the danger that they face. And so I think that at some level, David recognizes that he is in a, in a role similar to the role of the Passover lamb. So that when, like the Passover lamb, which is brought through with unbroken bones, and then God's people are delivered and the Egyptians are defeated, so now with David, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. When David is brought through with, with unbroken bones... God's servants, the righteous people, will be delivered and the wicked will be slain by affliction. If I'm right about this, it's just one more instance of David taking imagery and terminology from the the Exodus narrative and applying it to his own life. So we saw it in verse 5, those who look to him are radiant. We saw it in verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. We saw it in verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. And I'm proposing that we also see it in verse 20, where I'm proposing David is, he's not, he's not saying I'm going to be slain and thereby God's people are going to be delivered. But he, is, he does seem to be saying, in the same way that the bones of the Passover lamb were not broken, I'm going to be brought through this affliction with unbroken bones and then everybody aligned with me is going to be delivered and everybody opposed to me is going to be defeated. If I'm correct about this, then I think Jesus taught his disciples to read the Old Testament the way David read the Old Testament. Because over in John chapter 19, John writes, you know this, this passage, after they, uh, they come to break the legs of the people being crucified in verse 32, verse 33, they came to Jesus, they see that he's already dead, they don't break his legs, so they pierce his side with a spear Blood and water come flowing out. And then verse 36, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now, we just read Exodus 12, 46. You shall not break any of its bones. And and that verse, Exodus 12, 46, is not a prediction. It's not saying one day in the future, the Messiah is going to be crucified, but they're not going to break his bones. It's just a feature of what you do with the Passover lamb. So John, I don't think, is claiming that Moses was actually predicting that the Messiah would not have his bones broken. No, I think what John is claiming is that the type of thing that God did at the Exodus is, is fulfilled now in the type of thing that God has done through the crucifixion of Jesus. So that the Passover lamb was a type of Christ. It was, a, it was a, a, an event in a sequence that, that corresponds to this, this other sequence and is transcended by what happens in Jesus. So this, this I, I contend, in John 19, verse 36, is typological fulfillment. And I'm, I'm suggesting to you that in Psalm 34... David presents himself as an installment in that same typological pattern. Um, so there's a, there's a modern scholar who has, has said about John 19, nothing in the Old Testament would lead anyone ever uh, to associate the Messiah with the Passover lamb. And um, my response to that is, well, I think David did that in Psalm 34 when he, when he spoke of God keeping all the bones of the individual righteous man in verse 19, and not one of them being broken, I think David is, is casting himself, in a sense, in the role of the Passover lamb. So just to review what we've seen in this psalm, we've seen David celebrate God and praise God for deliverance 
as he calls people to enjoy God for themselves. Verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. And, and the praise at the beginning in verses 1 through 3 corresponds to the, the redemption at the end in verses 19 through 22. And then verses 4 through 7 describes deliverance, just as verses 15 through 18 describe deliverance, with verses 8 through, 18, 8 through 14, the call to taste and see at the center of this, this psalm's um, carefully, uh, architecturally balanced structure. Okay, um, I think that's where I'll conclude. And I'm happy to open this up for questions, comments, discussion, anything you'd like to pursue or discuss. Any questions you have that you'd like to uh, pursue further? Okay, so just to, be, just to be clear, are you asking about the fear of the Lord, what it looks like to fear God? Is that, is that the question? I think that we have analogies, we have analogous experiences of, of the fear of God when we experience a sense of, of intimacy and yet appropriate distance, distance that we know we dare not transgress upon with important people. So an, an example of this is, in my own life, is um, a man named Danny Aiken, who uh, he's now the president of the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. But when I was a student at Southern Seminary, where I now teach, he was the vice president at Southern. And he's a, he's a, he is hilarious. He is a wonderful, funny, glad-hearted, he's just a great guy. He's life of the party. He's hysterical. And, and I had been around Dr. Aiken in some informal contexts, and, and I had enjoyed his humor and enjoyed this, this sort of close, personal interaction with him. And as a result of that, I thought that I could just walk into his office and start making requests. Well, Dr. Aiken is not just a great guy. He's also an, you know, an important man with a lot of authority and a lot of responsibility. And I, I, I distinctly remember the day that I thought I would just you know, march into his office and start presenting my requests. And it was like I hit this wall of this unseen force that communicated, come no closer. And respect the authority of the man in whose office you are. And, and it was like, you know, I, I, I went bebopping in there and, and suddenly realized, oh, I am conducting myself in a way that is entirely inappropriate. And it's not because he didn't love me. And it's not because he didn't want what was, what was best for me. It was because we were in relationship in a hierarchy. And he's a man with, with I mean, maybe you saw that movie Lincoln when he talks about how he's clothed with immense power. I don't remember that. Maybe that's, but he, he was in, imbued with authority and he was exercising that authority in, a, in, a, in an appropriate way. And it made me afraid. And it caused me to rethink my behavior. And I, I, it sobered me. And it altered the way that I was planning to speak to him. And I think that's the way the fear of the Lord functions. None of that called into question... I didn't feel unsafe. I didn't feel... Now, I felt foolish. <laughs> um, I, I didn't feel like I was in any kind of danger or anything like that. But I knew that there were certain things that were inappropriate. And I think that if we experience God's greatness, there will be something like that where we know 
There's an appropriate distance for me to keep here. And there's, there's a right protocol for engaging with God so that, so that I don't transgress His holiness and so that I don't presume upon His, his kindly, gracious disposition toward me. So I think that's... And, and all that fear, it also makes it so that if God has set up the boundaries and said... This is where life is to be found. Um, well, you respect those boundaries, and, and you, don't, you don't transgress those boundaries. I don't know if I'm, I'm trying to, to get at what the fear of the Lord um, does for us. Those who fear him, we, 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 fear his, we know he punishes. We know that uh, he enforces. We know that he is the one in authority. We also know that, that he loves us. Uh, so it's, it's kind of like a, a relationship between a father and, a, and his children. Or in this other example that I gave, uh, the vice president of the institution and a measly student. You know, however well disposed the administrator is to that student. Yeah, I'll try. So, um, so I'll start with, with this idea of, of this, this issue of typology. I think that humans, we instinctively interpret the present with reference to the past. And, and our, our understanding of the present that we're interpreting through the lens of the past informs our expectations for the future. So um, with President Obama, for instance, I'm not, I'm not making any kind of political stance here. I'm just, I'm just observing that people who really liked President Obama, they identified him with FDR or with LBJ, these, these sort of uh, liberal... Uh, um, effective presidents who got a lot done, right? FDR had uh, all those welfare programs, LBJ had the Great Society, and now Obama's got health care. So if you, if you liked Obama and you liked that, that approach to things, you identify him with precursors and you, and you, you, know, you, you associate him with pe- other people in the past and you interpret him through that lens. People who didn't like Obama, they had another person that they identified him with that in their view was ineffectual and incompetent and, and not very good at anything. And Jimmy Carter, you know, he's, he's a failed president. He's a new Jimmy Carter. So, and, and uh, I remember reading, this goes both ways. It's not just the Democrats. Um, I remember reading a column about Ted Cruz where the columnist said, well, if Cruz wants to win this election, he's going to have to be Reagan on these points, and then he's going to be... And, and he just went through all these different politicians who had all these different strengths, and the guy was saying he's going to have to, you know, be... He's going to have to do as they did. So he, Ted Cruz was being interpreted um, in the light of these previous politicians who had accomplished what Cruz was trying to accomplish. So everybody does this. It happens all the time. The question is... What's the narrative that informs this whole thing? Is it the narrative of the Bible, or is it some other narrative? And, and, um, and then along with that, with that comes the question, how do you know what righteousness is, and who is defining what righteousness is? So according to one narrative, um, humanity is making progress in the right direction. And humanity is, is evolving upward on the scale of things, getting better every day in every way. And, and for these kinds of progressive thinkers, um, 
I, I guess if, if you were really to push them, they might say, well, eventually we're going to attain the millennium. But it's not necessarily a millennium that's going to be brought about as a result of God's action or the return of Christ or anything like this. It's, it's a, a land of bliss and health and eternal life that they've achieved through medical intervention. And, you know, there are these people, what do they call them? What are the trans... Uh, the, these people are trying to transcend death by medical means. Um, so it's like they're trying to save themselves. And in that narrative, um, you're, for, for many of these people, you're unrighteous if you believe the Bible. You're unrighteous if you hold to the Bible's um, statements about what righteous behavior and unrighteous behavior is. Whereas uh, if, if you hold to the Bible's narrative, it's actually unrighteous to call the wicked good and the good wicked. Um, so so you, that's the question. That's, that, that's what the question, I think, comes down to. Um, who is actually aligned with the Scriptures and who is actually correctly appropriating the Bible's story and, um, and how, who is rightly understanding him or herself uh, in light of the Bible story? I don't, I, I'm trying to answer your question. Well, if, if they're wrong about what the Bible says, yeah, we, yeah we're, we, we can be wrong. But if we're saying what the Bible says, we're saying what God has said. If, if we've correctly understood the Scriptures and correctly understood uh, what it is we're, we're saying is wicked, um, ultimately it's God's righteousness and God's standard that we are merely... And, and, and I think we can do this in humility because we're saying... I'm not above this standard. I'm not exempt from this standard. I didn't make this standard up to somehow privilege or advantage myself. And, and I'm not trying to use this standard to be oppressive to other people. Actually, what, what's happening here is um, this standard has been revealed by God in the Scriptures. Uh, I, I have a, uh, a conviction that I must articulate this standard. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think the best... The best um, guideline and criteria is the ancient one, and that is interpret Scripture by Scripture. So um, often when, when I draw attention to the way that David is appropriating elements of the Exodus narrative and applying them to his own life, I'll appeal, I didn't do it tonight, but I'll appeal to Psalm 18, where in verses 7 through 14 of Psalm 18, David describes what happened in Exodus 19 when God came down on Mount Sinai. And, and Psalm 18 is about, the, the superscription says, it's about the way the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And, and so David is talking about God rescuing him from Saul and his enemies, and he's describing God coming down on Mount Sinai. And then in verse 15 of Psalm 18, he says, Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. And that line, the blast of the breath of your nostrils, is a quotation from Exodus 15, verse 8. So it's like David is saying, uh, when God delivered me from Saul, he did for me what he did for Israel at the Exodus, and he parted the Red Sea for me at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. And then, verse 16 Psalm 18, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. Does that sound like something else in the Bible? And she named him Moses. 
For she said, I drew him out of the waters. So I, my point here is, what I'm claiming David is doing in Psalm 34, I think he's also doing in Psalm 18. So in answer to your question, I would say, we want to, we want to thoroughly acquaint ourselves with the Bible. And if we're claiming that something is happening in a particular passage of Scripture, it can help us if we can show it happening in other passages of Scripture. So I'm claiming David is using the Exodus narrative to interpret his own life, and as he does that, that's simultaneously pointing forward to the fulfillment of the Exodus in the life of Jesus. And I think we see that in Psalm 18, Psalm 34, um, and, and there are others. Um, Jim, maybe you could uh, just look at, help us with reading the Psalms. What are some typical errors that are made? Where's some things that you're hoping to help us understand, uh, move past this Mm -hmm. or develop this, that type of idea? Sure. Sure. I think that, um, I think that the, uh, the main, the main thing that we're inclined to do in our culture is we're inclined to play pop psychologist when it comes to the Psalms and, and become introspective in ways that the Psalms were not intended uh, for us to do so, so um, the Psalms. Uh, there's this there's, there's this book called um, Gilead that Marilyn Robinson wrote. Maybe some of you have read this book. It's a novel, and and she um, it's a novel about this pastor. And this pastor, in one at one point in the novel, he says, um, "I believe that in the future." And he's talking about the new heavens and new earth. He's a Christian pastor. In the future, this world will be Troy, the ballad they sing in the streets. So what he's, what, what, uh, this world will be Troy, and what we do here will be the ballad that we sing in the streets. What he's saying is that um, the, the story of the Iliad is a story that celebrates, it's poetry that celebrates the mighty accomplishments of Achilles and the Greek soldiers uh, at, at, at Troy, uh, in that battle in, you know, ages past. And so we have this poem that celebrates the past. And what he's saying is our lives are going to be the story that provides, that, that prompts the poetry that we, that we sing in the streets in, in the new heaven and new earth, in the new Jerusalem. And the Psalms are the poetry that celebrate God's mighty acts on behalf of Israel and that anticipate those mighty acts in the future. So when we, when we go totally introspective and, and play pop, psychology with, pop psychologists with the Psalms, often we're not thinking in terms of Israel's history, nor are we thinking in terms of the way that these things are going to be fulfilled in Christ. And insofar as we're doing that, I think we're missing the point. So, so the main thing I want to say is we need to read the Psalms in the, in the context of the rest of the Bible so that uh, the, the Old Testament's narratives and um, expectations are informing what we're reading in the Psalms and then also uh, setting us up to, to, to be prepared for what God is going to do in Christ. So there's a sense really where they, they need to be understood together. Yes. Not just picking pieces that happen to hit me in the moment, but to look at the big scheme of what's happening. Definitely. And I think that's really been helpful today mm. to 
to grasp that idea uh, because it helps us understand the whole so much better mm. than to read just my little life into this passage rather than the big picture. Mm. Is there anything from this morning from the uh, class at 9.15? Uh, he, he he almost gave an overview of the Psalter <laughs> there with with 110 at the center. It was very helpful. But anything there as far as how the uh, how the Psalms are put together uh, as a, as a whole, or anything from that uh, context this morning. If you're not absolutely sure, don't worry about it. But it, it just if it was something that came up in the context of this morning's session, anything there? The proposal that I would make that these individual psalms, they're almost like a snapshot from a particular... The ones that David wrote, they're like a snapshot from a particular incident in his life. And what he's done is he's taken these individual snapshots and he's created a collage. By setting them side by side, by arranging them in order, he's created a collage. And so, um, to use an analogy, if I were to take a series of snapshots... And, and let's say I started with a picture of my parents on their wedding day. And then I have a picture of my dad holding me when I was a newborn. And then I have a picture, you know, my first day of school and then maybe graduation and then wedding day and, and so on and so forth. Well, I think that um, it, it would be easy for somebody looking, this, looking at this to say, oh, I see what he's doing. Yeah, I see. And, and if, 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 we were to, if we were to read straight through the Psalms in a... In a in either a more literal translation or in the original Hebrew, we would see that what I pointed to in like 33:18, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, and then 34:15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, that kind of thing, eyes, those, these link words that connect psalms pervade the Psalter. So the psalms are tied together at so many levels. We saw it with uh, Psalm 110, um, when, when uh, 109 ends with a statement of, it says, um, he stands at the right hand of the needy one, and then 110.1 opens, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So that right hand joins 109 to 110. That kind of thing pervades the Psalms. So I think it would be easy for someone who, who understands the Bible and who understands David's life to come, around, come along after David and say, oh, I see what he's doing here. And then... You know, if I had my collage out, and let's say I didn't have a picture of what took place on September 11th, 2001, somebody might say, well, that was a really important event in world history. We're going to slot a photo in to that effect. And then maybe they, they say, you know, he doesn't have a picture of his funeral in this collage, naturally, because he, he died. So we're going to put in a picture of his funeral. So this is what I'm proposing happened for... For those who came after David, they understood what he was doing. They saw what the project was aiming at. And, and I think in order for their work to be received by the believing community, they themselves had to be inspired by the Holy Spirit and have prophetic status so that when they add a psalm or maybe add a, a series of psalms, let's say with the psalms of the sons of Korah or something like that, um, they do so with authority and the Holy Spirit guiding them in the same way that he had guided David. So I think that's a better proposal than, than what is typically... I mean, I don't know that people typically hazard a guess about what happened, but in my view, that's likely, that David set out an agenda that 
I mean, maybe he communicated it clearly to Solomon, but eventually it would have had to been picked up from what he had done. So you're saying inspiration, revelation for those that are filling in the blanks. Yes. Are you, what are you saying about their arrangement? Um, I, think that the, I think that the arrangement is, is um, part of the message. Um, and, and so that um, Psalms 1 and 2, for instance, um, Psalm 1, um, it, it presents us with this blessed man and this congregation of the righteous... And, and we're told in Psalm 1 that the blessed man doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. And then in Psalm 2, we're told what the counsel of the wicked is. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. plotting against Yahweh and against his Messiah. And then um, um, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners. Psalm 2 tells us what's going to happen to, the, to, to sinners who stand in the way. Uh, Kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in the way. Um, and then... Um, so there, there are all these thematic connections between Psalms 1 and 2 so that those two psalms are introducing the whole and, and sort of setting our, our expectations and, and preparing us for, for the rest of the Psalter. And, and with the whole Psalter, all 150, do, do you see a, a providential work of how they're all finally arranged and how they're linked? Do you see something deeper than just providential? Um, I'm inclined. I'm not talking about the words, right? That, that, that's a, but but the putting together, right? I'm inclined to think that someone like Ezra, and I don't know who did it, but but someone like Ezra, who knows the scriptures, who understands their meaning, and and who is um, blessed to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, would have put the finishing touches on probably. Probably not just the Psalter, but the whole Old Testament canon, so that um, the whole is arranged in such a way that th- there's more to the whole than just the sum of the individual parts. The arrangement itself is I think really, so. really fascinating. Anything else from this morning? So um, if, you go to, if you go to sbts.edu and search the name Gordon Wenham, W-E-N-H-A-M, Gordon Wenham, he gave either three or four lectures at Southern Seminary back in the early 2000s that are just fascinating. There's one on this sort of um, storyline across the Psalter, um, and then there's another, uh, that's one of the lectures. Another one of the lectures is on praying the Psalms, and another one of the lectures is on the Messianic hope in the Psalms. And I can't remember if there were three lectures or four, but I think those three topics were covered. And then um, uh, Crossway, Justin Taylor, uh, and, and Crossway Books, they reached out to him and said, hey, we'd love to publish that material. And that eventually appeared as the book, with some other stuff that he had done, that eventually appeared as a book called, the, I think it's called The Psalter Reclaimed. And, and that's a, so that, those lectures and that book were really significant in my thinking about mm. the Psalms. That's good. Do you have anything coming? Uh, I have, I have, I have, uh, a uh, two-volume commentary on Psalms, the body of which is complete. Uh, but it's, I'm editing it right now, and um, eventually, Lord willing, it will appear. All right. So, but it'll be it'll you, you heard still it be a here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you.